Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. that some listeners may find upsetting. We begin at the end. A cool, dry morning in August, a Wednesday. A 29-year-old man in the prime of his life stands on a scaffold. The roar from the crowd arrayed below engulfs him like floodwater, buffeting and deafening him with abuse. For the first, but not the last time today, Tom Parker tilts his head back and gasps for air. He is surrounded by a sea of faces, so many it's impossible to count them all. Some are contorted in rage and scorn. Some are giddy with excitement. Others turn away, afraid to look upon the condemned man's face out of respect or superstition. But then there are those men just like him or like he used to be, full of drink, leering and braying as if reveling in a day at the races. Pressed in a doorway, a youth and a maid steal an unlikely embrace, her bare breast hidden only by her lover's kneading hand, their passion inflamed by the bloodlust of those thronged before them. Some have been here all night, keen to take a prime spot from which to enjoy the day's grisly spectacle. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The chaplain's words are drowned out by another wave of impatient jeers. A hush descends now, though, as the white hood is placed over the prisoner's head. In the distance, the barking of dogs and the striking of a clock. It is eight o'clock. Parker's eyes are swimming his heart beating as though to break free from his ribcage. A hot, dark bloom spreads in his trousers, betraying his terror. As gentle tides go rolling by. Those closest can see and smell his shame. Some hurl obscenities at him, fanning the air melodramatically. The dirty bastard shat himself. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on the latter day 
upon the earth. Parker mouths the verse almost in unison, desperate to display his newly restored faith in the Almighty. The summer breeze fills the chaplain's surplus like a sail and snatches at the brittle leaves of the prayer book. He had fretted that the expected rain would make the scaffold slick. Any slip up here would be greeted with a very public type of ridicule that he wished to avoid. And though after my skin worms destroy this body... Parker shuts his eyes as the noose is slipped over his hooded head and tries to mouth the verse. And often do the winds entwine to send a distant call. But a vision swims into view, a familiar, kindly face. Every detail is there, from the carefully parted grey hair under the modest bonnet to the cameo brooch at her throat. Mother! To his horror, the vision distorts then, revealing a bloated, sightless eye and a skein of dried blood staining the pallid cheek. Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. Intones the Reverend Howard. He cometh up and he is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. Writhing, Parker screws up his eyes but still the apparition of his mother dances before him her lolling head now reveals a shaved, pallid scalp peppered with birdshot. He tries to scream, but his tongue has swollen and his mouth fills once more with the brandy he'd supped at breakfast. In the midst of life, we are in death. The bolt is drawn with a terrible sound and Richard Thomas Parker dangles in agony on the scaffold his struggles lasting much longer than expected. For a moment he imagines he is airborne, gliding above the throng, impervious to the sting of their insults, their jeers finally silenced in awe. But then the roar of the crowd crashes back in waves, febrile and animalistic, their chanting like peals of thunder, an urgent response to the denial of the reverence fervent prayers. He died hard, they will say. Thomas Askin, the executioner, has a reputation for botched hangings. Parker convulses, but the drop is too short to break his neck. The noose draws tight, the brass ring behind his ear trapping his last breath, compressing the vagus nerve. And in that instant, as his consciousness evaporates, he is briefly aware of an overpowering odour. It is blood and pig shit and lilac blossom. The running sands recall the time when love was Hello and welcome to the Six O'Clock Knock, the true crime podcast that takes a fresh look at murder. I'm Simon Ford, a journalist and writer. And I'm Jack Morell, a former police homicide detective. 
This week, we examine a very different kind of murder. The shooting of a mother by her son in a fit of drunken rage. The so-called Fiskerton murder. A sequence of events that was triggered by a national disaster, but which would culminate in a very personal tragedy. We are going to the village of Fiskerton in Nottinghamshire, on the banks of the River Trent, a quiet place popular these days with dog walkers and anglers. There's a village-run shop and a busy family pub called the Bromley at Fiskerton. But 157 years ago, this rural community was the scene of a murder that has been all but forgotten by locals and visitors alike. The killing of Elizabeth Parker, a farmer's wife by her son, Richard Thomas Parker. We sought out an acknowledged expert on the Fiskerton murder, a QC and judge called Paul Mann and I went to Fiskerton and met with Paul where he told me about the background to the case. We're here in Fiskerton on a glorious June afternoon and here to help us navigate these murky, fast-moving waters on the banks of the River Trent, who better than a QC and expert on the Fiskerton murder, Paul Mann. Paul has joined us on this case to make some sense of it all. Paul, what's the background to the case? Well, the story actually starts in the hills of South Yorkshire at the Dale Dyke Dam. It was the first of a number being built to supply the Sheffield steel industry and by March 1864, the dam was nearly full. But just before midnight on the 11th, the dam head breached allowing 690 million gallons of water to escape downstream. It created a tidal wave some 50 feet high and devastated everything in its path. All the way to Sheffield and beyond, bodies were being pulled out of the water for days afterwards as far as Doncaster. And the national press called it the Great Inundation. Public interest was so great that excursions were organised to view the scene. And one such trip was due to leave Newark Railway Station on the 28th of March, which was an Easter Monday. Tom Parker was then staying with his parents uh, in Fiskerton and wanted to join the trip. But his father, Samuel, was against it. He was relying on Tom's help over the next few days to get his crops sown. But his mother, Elizabeth, said he could go so long as he promised to be back by Monday evening. Tom promised, but didn't actually return until about 5.15 the next day. Hannah Burden, who was in service with the family, was the first to see him and according to her, he was drunk. He was also in an agitated state. So was his father when he saw the condition his son was in. Okay, but as our research has revealed, Parker was no stranger to family rounds, was he? Nor indeed to being in trouble with the law. That's right. Tom was a troubled soul and a waster. As an only child, his parents had given him every opportunity they could, even set him up in business as a butcher in a building opposite their home. But he squandered his money on drink and gambling, leading to him being declared bankrupt. 
and in drink he could be argumentative and violent, um, for which he spent nights in the southern lockup to sober up. And he was particularly brutal towards his wife, whom he attacked on the very night of their wedding in 1860. His parents tried to keep the couple together, but in 1863 she finally left him, taking their two young children with her to live with her father in Newark. A case of wife beating brought before the Southall Quarter Sessions was later settled by him agreeing to pay his wife maintenance and the costs of the hearing. I suppose it's clear that although Parker was a heavy drinker and a wife beater, he was dealt with relatively lightly by the authorities. Of course, today you'd like to think that things were different, but what goes on behind closed doors is still a very personal thing. The police and the courts may change their working practices, charity and support services may develop new initiatives, but family relationships remain very private affairs. So, for sure, the police would deal with families like the Parkers and they would try to offer the best solution to whatever was going wrong, but yet it still comes down to the resolve of those involved, even today, to recognise their problems and to have the strength to get out of it. And in any case, on the evening of Tuesday the 29th of March 1864, Thomas Parker had arrived here at his father's house in a state of drunken rage. By all accounts, Tom had been drinking since he reached Sheffield the day before. On his return to Newark, he then decided to remain there, drinking for the rest of the day. Following morning, he hung around the cattle market, topping up on drink, and later got into an argument with his father-in-law, who'd not let him see his children. It was probably this that left him so particularly maddened on his return to Fiskerton. And so the scene is set for that inevitable and unavoidable showdown. Yes, it has to be said that Tom inherited some of his temper from his father, who was not afraid of confronting his son when he stepped out of line. And some of their arguments had led to them scrapping in the yard. Tuesday evening, Samuel laid into him verbally the moment he saw him. Tom quickly responded by raising his fists. Hannah Burden, fearing what would happen next, fled next door to fetch Mrs. Haynes, who sometimes acted as a peacemaker. Tom's mother, meanwhile, stood between them, trying to stop a fight breaking out. But Samuel accused Tom of being a rogue, a villain and a thief and ordered him out of the house. A passerby then saw all three Parkers tumble out of the house into the front yard, pushing, pulling each other. Elizabeth shouting, Tom, you shall not fight your father. And this was the moment that Mrs. Haynes arrived. She focused on Samuel Parker and talked him into moving away. She also advised him to say no more. But as he reached his stable block, he said something to Tom that caused Tom to rush back into the house. His mother followed after him, but soon ran back out shouting, he's got a gun and he's going to shoot. Tom's father kept a shotgun by the sideboard that he used for scaring sparrows off his crops. On this occasion, unfortunately, he'd left it loaded. Tom took up the gun 
stood by the window and pointed the gun towards the yard. He discharged the gun twice, almost simultaneously. He was aiming the gun towards the stable where his father was standing, but it was his mother that he hit first. She accidentally crossed the line of fire as she ran from the house across the yard. The shot struck the top of her head and she fell to the ground. Some of the shot from the second firing hit Samuel in the face and chest. Nearby locals rushed to the scene to help. Tom fled the house in panic. As he ran down the yard, Mrs. Hayne shouted, Tom, you've shot and killed your mother. His father shouted, what have you done that for? Tom shouted back, you should not aggravate me so. Tom ran along the Trent towpath and into the home of Mrs. Burkett. Tom begged her to hide him, saying, don't split. I've shot and killed my mother. I shall be hanged. Mrs. Burkett refused to help, and so he left. Hannah Burden, meanwhile, had fetched PC Barksby, who lived in Fiskerton. He, together with the village blacksmith, went in search. They found Tom stood on the river bank. As they approached him, Tom said, I know all about it. I'll give myself up. I've done it, but it was pure accident. Before they took him away, Cornelius Doncaster, the publican at the Spread Eagle, spoke with him. Doncaster had split up some of Tom's previous fights with his father and had taken some medicinal brandy round in case it would assist Tom's mother. To him, Elizabeth still seemed to be alive, but close to death. When he informed Tom, Tom replied, it was a pure accident. He'd not realized the gun was loaded. PC Barksby wanted to walk Tom to the lockup in Southall. There were no such thing as, as police cars in those days. But Tom cut up rough and a cart was borrowed to take him. And so with Parker in custody and his mother mortally wounded, our story shifts 15 miles away to the bustling industrial town of Nottingham. Remarkably, Elizabeth Parker lingered on until the 16th of May when she suffered a catastrophic stroke. But the surgeon who conducted the post-mortem was satisfied that she died from the gunshots that had penetrated her skull and aggravated her brain. After a number of preliminary hearings at the Southall Petty Sessions and the Coroner's Court, Tom was sent for trial at the next court of assize, charged with the murder of his mother and shooting with intent to kill his father. The hearing was held at the Shire Hall on high pavement in Nottingham. Tom awaited trial in the county jail that was situated underneath the Shire Hall. There was no such thing as legal aid in those days, but the Parker family raised the funds to pay for a Newark solicitor to prepare Tom's defence, which was conducted at trial by Sergeant O'Brien. In those days, the, a sergeant, as he was called, was a very senior barrister, similar to a QC. The trial was listed before the Honourable Mr Justice Blackburn and started on the morning of the 25th of July, 1864. 
At trial, the most important witness for the prosecution was Mrs. Haynes, who said she had seen Tom at the window taking aim at his mother. This had not been her original account to the police. She, like other witnesses, had claimed only to hear the gunshots, not see who had fired them. Right up to her death, Tom's mother denied any knowledge of a shooting and claimed she hurt her head falling downstairs. Tom's father also claimed not to know how he'd come by his injuries. and He wasn't a witness at trial. The prosecution did have evidence of Tom's admissions to others of having shot his mother, but only accidentally. It was only after Mrs. Parker's death that Mrs. Haynes changed her account to that of seeing Tom deliberately shoot at his parents. What most people will not realise is that at the time of Tom's trial, the accused was not allowed to give sworn evidence in his own defence. Often this was a blessing, as the mostly uneducated defendants would have struggled to deal with cross-examination, and the innocent were at risk of saying something they did not mean that ended up convicting them. But the defendant was allowed to give what was called an unsworn statement from the dock. This could be prepared in advance, read by him to the jury, without the prosecution being able to question him about it. And I would certainly have expected Tom to take that opportunity. But he didn't. Instead, he relied on his barrister to make the argument for him in his closing speech that the jury could not be sure that the gun had gone off other than accidentally and that at worst Tom was guilty of manslaughter rather than murder. The jury was out for only 40 minutes. They returned guilty verdicts in respect of both charges. After assuming the black cap, Mr Justice Blackburn asked Tom if there was anything he wished to say before sentence was passed. Tom said, I am not guilty of willful murder. I had no intention to do it. I never saw either of them when I fired the shot. What a shame he'd not said that to the jury. The judge proceeded to sentence Tom to death. Tom's father, who was present in court, threatened to kill himself if the sentence was executed. I'm afraid that you're no more mine. Until 1907, there was no Court of Criminal Appeal. The only available avenue was to petition the Crown for clemency. If successful, this would commute this sentence to life imprisonment. The procedure was to apply to the Home Secretary who would advise the Crown appropriately. This was the course that Tom's solicitor followed. In seeking clemency, he chiefly relied on the fact that when the jury returned its verdicts, it added a recommendation for clemency, based on the fact of the prisoner having been in liquor. Mr Ashley, the solicitor, also included petitions raised in Southall, Fiskerton and Newark in support of the appeal. On the 6th of August, the Home Secretary, Sir George Grey, stated that he could find no grounds for advising clemency in Tom's case. Tom's solicitor made further efforts, asking for a personal deputation with the Home Secretary. 
and I was turned down. The fact of the matter is that Sir George Grey was already deeply unpopular for having allowed such a petition in the case of another man, George Townley, convicted of murder at Nottingham the previous autumn. On the day of Tom's eventual execution, parts of the crowd were still shouting for Townley to be hung as Tom was gasping his last breaths. Tom was executed outside the Shire Hall on the 10th of August 1864. It proved to be the last public hanging in Nottinghamshire. We're in Rolleston now, barely a half mile from Fiskerton, where the murder took place. And we're in the churchyard of Holy Trinity. And just over there is the grave of Elizabeth Parker, a simple, modest marker that belies the circumstances of her violent demise. And we're joined now, rather miraculously, I've got to say, by an actual living relative of Richard Thomas Parker, Emmeline Seven. Welcome to the Six O'Clock Knock. Hello, thank you for asking me here. Just tell me a little bit about how you came to discover your familial connection with Tom Parker. Well, I started to research my family history and when I got to the Parker branch, my dear old mum said, Oh, my dad told me that somebody, you know, one of the Parkers murdered somebody. I think it was an argument over money. And so, of course, that was it. We got to delve deeper. And um, that's when I, I, I discovered that, you know, he was my first cousin four times removed. And this story had been passed through the Parker side of my family, through the generations, down to my mum and then now to me and oh i just found it so fascinating i just had to to put all together and piece the, the actual story i went to the archives and the manuscripts and special collections where there was newspapers held and other documents and uh, i just felt it was a story that needed putting out there what was it like the moment you realized that one of your relatives a distant relative had murdered his mother because it's such a distant relation, it, it didn't really sort of hit as, oh my God, to start off with. It was more a fascination for it. People have got a black sheep in the family, but wow, this is a good one kind of thing. I'm afraid it was that kind of a, a response until I started to research it and found out what really happened to poor Mrs. Parker in the full story. So when did it really hit home? the reality of what had happened and how dreadful it was. I think the post-mortem brought it home. And then the sadness of the fact that, you know, his mother and father weren't blaming him for what happened and they wanted him to come home like it could all be forgotten about. And I just found that quite, you know, it was sad and quite disturbing really that you could forget that your son has, has shot your wife and yourself. The love must have been very strong, but because they spoilt him so much, they ruined him, really. What could have been a, a close, loving family was ruined by, by them spoiling him too much and in, overindulging him and just forgiving him for every wrong deed that he did. 
turned him into this monster, really. It could have also been just a drunken rage. Maybe he didn't really intend to, to murder him. He certainly wasn't shooting at his mother. He was shooting at his father. And poor Mrs Parker just got in the way. What do you think about the trial? Do you think he got a fair trial? In 1864 it would have been considered as a reasonably fair trial because the justice system was so different mm. but he didn't get the opportunity to give his unsworn statement his version of, of events to try and defend himself to the jury and he also no witnesses came forward in his defense and it can be argued that that was either because his parker solicitor felt that they might do more harm than good, or he chose not to give an unsworn statement. Those, those things can't be found out now. He only made that statement after the jury had returned its verdict. Mm. So, in a sense, it was futile yes. at that point. Yes. What must that last night have been like? Apparently he slept for a few hours and I'm putting myself in his shoes, would I be able to go to sleep? And would I be able to eat a breakfast the following morning knowing what was going to happen that day? Mm. I found that a little odd that, what was the point in having any breakfast? <laughs> Whether physically you'd be able to, to keep do it. it down. Yeah. Mm. But in one of his letters to his estranged wife, you know, he said, I wish Dad trod this path earlier and listened to what you told me to, then I wouldn't be in this situation. There was that reconciliation, uh, wasn't there? Yes. Tell, me, tell me about the reconciliation with his estranged wife, because that was particularly poignant. She'd actually come to the prison with her brother-in-law and she'd wanted to bring their little son Samuel to see Thomas Parker before he was hanged to say goodbye but she was persuaded against that. According to the newspaper report Emily came in and they literally threw themselves at each other with their arms round each other crying and they stayed embraced throughout the whole half an hour that they were talking and they could barely be pulled apart. It was very heart-wrenching even yeah. though she'd he'd beaten her thrown water over her countless times, you know, thrown her out into the streets in a night where there was obviously some strong love there. And then you come to a place like this on a lovely June evening, we're sitting here, and over there is Elizabeth Parker in her last resting place, and you think, well, in 1864 one day, there was a funeral cortege that went from this church out to the grave there, and they buried her mortal remains. And this is where it all ends for her, but for you, it goes on. My daughter now has the whole story written in a book. She has a copy that one day I'm hoping that she might read. And then I've got two grandsons as well. I want our family history to be kept in the family as it has been done through generations and generations down both sides, my dad and my mum, but obviously this one from my mum's side. And I really hope that as they get older, they'll read it and appreciate what life might have been like in the mid 1800s, how different it was to how we live now. Emmeline Seven, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the six o'clock knock. Thanks so much for telling us your story. Oh, and thank you. 
the very best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's Emmeline Seven. Jack, what struck me being there in the churchyard in Rolleston was that simple, modest marker, the gravestone, belied the violent circumstances of Elizabeth Parker's demise. It was a world away from the very public display of disorder and histrionics that characterised the trial and then the execution of her son, her murderer. What must she have felt as her life ebbed away? Did she understand that her own son had pulled the trigger and shot her? Did she have the opportunity and wherewithal to process that shocking truth and decide to forgive him? Or did she die confused and angry at what he'd done to her? We don't know. Mm, and her husband, Samuel, we do know, sold up the farm in Fiskerton just a year after the murder and ended up living with his brother in Snenton in Nottingham, some, what, 15 miles southwest of there. Perhaps the wrench of losing his wife and their son was just too much to bear and he needed a fresh start somewhere new. There's little doubt that most men would have been broken by such a tragedy. By the time of Samuel's death in October 1884, he'd moved in with his nephew, Matthew, in Nottingham, to whom he'd left the bulk of his estate. And we're talking 41 pounds, five shillings, and no pence. And we've calculated that to be about 4,300 pounds in adjusted money. Not a huge sum for a life of toil on the land. Yeah, uh, I wonder why it was such a small amount. The Nottingham Guardian, the newspaper, some months after the execution, reported that there'd been complaints by the magistrates on the expenses allowed by the clerk of the court of assizes and having to pay for flies, that carriages, taxes, I suppose, today they'd be, uh, for himself and for the medical costs of Elizabeth's treatment. Now, were these ultimately reimbursed by Samuel? Did he have to pay for that? Did that force him to sell the farm, move in with his brother? I guess we'll never know. But what is clear is that the events must have had a profound effect on Samuel, with the murder and execution passed down through the family, even to the modern generation. An oral tradition solemnly delivered, a folk memory that can't be erased or forgotten, and perhaps shouldn't be. And we've done our bit to share this tragic tale to a whole new generation of listeners who may have been unfamiliar with Richard Thomas Parker's story of rage and punishment. And so we come to the end of the story of Richard Thomas Parker, the last man to be publicly hanged in Nottingham. It was an age when crimes of violence were brutally punished. An eye for an eye, a life for a life. Spare a thought for Samuel Parker. He lived another 20 years without his wife or son. He forgave Thomas and asked for the death penalty to be reduced, but his appeal fell on deaf ears. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. The last executions in England took place a 100 years after Tom Parker went to the gallows. Capital punishment was suspended in England in 1965 and abolished for murder four years later. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Six O'Clock Knock. We're on Spreaker, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and well, wherever you get your podcasts. And there's a YouTube channel where you can listen to all of our episodes. If you'd like to contribute to the cause, please put a penny in the governor's hat. 
by which I mean we have a Patreon account and that helps us keep the lights on. Thank you kindly. So, from Fiskerton in Nottinghamshire, it's goodbye until we meet again for another edition of the Six O'Clock Knock. The Six O'Clock Knock is presented by Simon Ford and Jack Morell and produced by Paul Bradshaw and is available on every major listening app. Please help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and telling your friends to subscribe. Thank you.